Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. I uh, wanted to share with you, some of you know um, Dave Leonardi and Susan, and Susan's mom passed away this week. Uh, we, uh, we, we see it as something of a homegoing for her as um, she has been in ill health, and so while there will be a loss, we also um, are encouraged in uh, her, her destination, as it were. This week, <clears throat> this week um, Cece Campbell um, fell and fractured her femur. And uh, so uh, Cece and, and Bob sit right where... Jack and Sherry are, I don't know if the mantle has fallen on you two there, but that's, uh, that's where they usually, they usually sit. And, uh, and so Cece is in the hospital, in Swedish Edmonds Hospital, and Barb and I went to visit uh, yesterday. And uh, when we went up there, um, we, we got into her room, and uh, she shared with us and showed us the, the injury, as only Cece would. And... Uh, and then we had this wonderful, wonderful, warm visit for five minutes, and Cece said, you can leave now. <laughs> if, if you know Cece, uh, Cece, if you're watching, we love you. Um, it's, uh, it, was, it was so much fun, and it's just typical, just typical Cece. Uh, we, we, we have so much fun with her. So we're talking about amen today, and uh, some of you are looking forward to the amen and the brunch that will follow. But we, uh, we have been uh, doing the five words of worship. The first time, the first Sunday, we talked about... Oh, this is not good. This is not good. Abba, thank you, thank you. And that's not the Swedish rock group. Jim, where are you? <laughs> there you are. Not this, not that, not that Abba, Jim. Jim, Jim came to us, uh, I don't know, what, 10 months ago, and he said, um, he said, I'm an aeronautical engineering professor at the University of Washington, and um, I'm going on sabbatical, so you're not going to see us for five months, and we're going to be in Stockholm. So um, I figured you were thinking about the other Abba because, uh, yeah, okay. It's funny, um, I told, Jim, I don't know if I told you this. Sorry, Casey, this is, it's second service, so people don't mind staying a little longer. So, so there was a, a chap, I don't know if he is here this morning or not, but he came in and he, he told me last Sunday, he kind of looked over the room and he told me last Sunday, he said, uh, I want to bring a Swedish band to the church. Uh, I want to book it to, in the church. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, we're a Norwegian church. <laughs> <laughs> and he quickly said, oh, Scandinavian, Scandinavian. But anyway, um, where was I, Casey? Oh, so first Sunday was ABBA, not the Swedish rock group. Second Sunday, last Sunday was... Hallelujah, much better. I, I can go home now feeling, feeling better. That was good. Hallelujah. It does suggest you have short-term memories, though. I, uh, anyway, um, so today we're going to talk about amen, the, 
the third uh, word of worship. And this week, it addresses the challenge of doubt in our lives as Christians. So the expression in worship of the amen has a rich tradition in the Old Testament. It's a spoken response that kind of says, what has just taken place is binding for me. So when we say amen, we're essentially saying, yes, that is binding for me. And what the pronouncement of the word means is an affirmation that it is sure and valid, kind of the, along the lines of what Casey shared with us earlier. It's interesting, it's used at the end of the first four books of the Psalms. I know you don't think of the Psalms as having books, but if you look carefully, you'll see that Psalms, in addition to each of the Psalms, is divided into books, and the books are marked by an expression of amen. So we see uh, it in 41, uh, Psalm 41, verse 13, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. You know, when we look at the scriptures and we see heroes of the faith, one of the things that we have to realize is that these great heroes of the faith also had their doubts. And I can't tell you how encouraging it is to me when I follow their biographies in scripture and the biographies in scripture share with me that their lives and their doubts are something that I can reflect on regarding my life and my doubts and my challenges in the journey because they went through it too. And in particular, David was this way. In the Psalms, he's so honest, and his honesty creates an opportunity for us to pray the Psalms when we're struggling, when we're having challenges with faith. For some of you, these words will be words that you'll recognize, Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Originally, those were David's words. Now, we know that Jesus spoke them from the cross, but they were originally David's words, reflecting the doubt and the pain in his own life in wanting this close relationship with God and yet going through this period of doubt. He was under unrelenting attacks at the time that this particular psalm was written, and it represents an honest cry from his heart. He's just being honest about what's going on. But David didn't remain in this place. He was also the one who shared these words, and I'd like you to, to read them with me if you would. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So you find in the midst of his pain and discouragement, Psalm 22, we find in Psalm 23 this affirmation of the closeness of his relationship 
with God. David found he could both articulate his feelings of doubt, but also trust in the midst of circumstances. In Psalm 20, we read, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So in the Old Testament, this perspective on the amen or the amen is an affirmation of the trustworthiness of God that is now reflected in praise. So God, in spite of the circumstances, is trustworthy, and we express that trustworthiness with the amen by saying, this is true, this is trustworthy, I can believe and follow this. While there are many reasons to trust God, for me there are a couple of things that are particularly meaningful. The first of them is the work of God in the world, sometimes called general revelation. It affirms the hand of God in our world. Psalm 19.1, David captures this thought when he says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I don't know how many times I have told you about driving into Edmonds and seeing the Olympic Mountains and it's a spiritual moment for me. And uh, having been blessed now to be able to uh, go flying when you're up at 3,000 feet or 5,000 feet, it's absolutely spectacular. The mountain ranges, the, the, the Mount Rainier and Mount Baker and the San Juan Islands are just absolutely phenomenal. And uh, we know that in the beauty of it, but there is, there's a whole nother dimension, a whole nother depth of beauty that points to the design of God in our world that, that is just a phenomenal expression of the power and the uniqueness of God in creation. And so I have a brief video for you. I think it's only about two or three minutes long. But before Pastor Nancy shows us the video, I'd like you to think about God's design and the, the, the perfect nature of God's design and what it reveals to us about who he is. Let's watch together.
So I admire uh, the Olympic range, <laughs> and so we should. But when you think about the wonder of creation, I, I just don't see. I, 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 I do not have the faith for a non-theistic view of creation in light of what we have just seen. Some years ago, I read an article in the scientific journal known as Time Magazine. It was called Cosmic Conundrum, and it spoke of the anthropic principle, namely that the cosmos is against all odds perfectly tuned for life. The writer says this, Many of the fundamental characteristics of our cosmos, the relative strength of gravity, <clears throat> electromagnetism, and the forces that operate inside the atomic nuclei, as well as the masses and relative abundances of different particles, are so finely tuned that if one of them were even slightly different, life as we know it couldn't exist. If the so-called weak nuclear interaction was a tiny bit stronger or weaker than it is, for example, stars wouldn't blow up in the mammoth supernovas that spread elements like carbon and oxygen out into space. And without those elements, there would be no water and no organic molecules if the strong nuclear force were just one-half of one percent stronger or weaker. Stars could not make carbon or oxygen in the first place. What was it that the verse that we just read said? The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. The song says, in the stars, his handiwork I see. And as we shift to the New Testament from the Old Testament expressions that we have talked about, we see another strong foundation for trusting in God. Like the Old Testament, the Amen in the New Testament was an affirmation of truth for worship. Last week, we talked about hallelujah from Revelation 19. You can see there in verse 4 that the Amen is paired with hallelujah as an affirmative expression of worship. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 16, we see here again a unique expression of Amen. Verse 16, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? It's a very clear recognition of what amen means, which is someone expresses something that is true or maybe a revelation of God, and in the room, because we understand what is being said, we say Amen. We say, so be it. We say, yes, Lord, that's true. Apply it to my life. That's the expression of the amen. And in Christian prayers and doxologies, we see in the New Testament, often they end with the amen. It's a verbal response that simply expresses agreement with what is said. In Revelation 3, 4, we see that Christ himself, interestingly, is identified as amen. Verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus Christ is the amen, the faithful and true witness. He's a reliable witness of God. So how does this affect the doubts that sometimes come into our lives? The truth is, I believe, that our faith rises and falls on the person of Jesus Christ. 
Either he is the Son of God who came to earth some 2,000 years ago or not. It's as simple as that. I'm going to invite you to stand once again for just a moment, and I am going to ask for your amen to something by repeating it with me if you affirm this in your own heart. Together, we're going to say a statement of faith, an affirmation of truth. The entire thing really is an amen. It's saying this is true. So let's share this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Thank you for your amen towards Jesus Christ, biblical truth, because our faith rises or falls on this. Thank you. You may be seated. So either what we just said is true or we are of most people deluded and Sunday by Sunday and Bible study by Bible study and devotion by devotion, we're simply wasting our time. The historical reality was the foundation upon which the church of Jesus Christ is built. Ours is a reasonable faith. Paul was never afraid to reason about Jesus Christ with others. We read about his time in Athens in Acts 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. When we read the Apostles' Creed, we were reading a statement of truth. And it's a statement of truth, as I said, that is either true or false. And because it's a statement of truth, we can reason about it. Jack has a master's degree in apologetics, and it focuses on this very thing, and that is the fact that our faith is reasonable, and we can sit down and have conversations with other people and not be in fear about them poking holes in why we believe, but in fact, we can affirm the fact that our faith is true, and it's based on facts. In 1 Peter, we're to be able to give a reason for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We've been talking about initiatives at North Sound in the year to come, and one of the things that we're still talking about as elders is something called cultural witness. And if this is something that moves ahead, we'll be sharing more with you about it. Cultural witness is an expression of communicating to our community that the Christian faith is reasonable. 
we have a reasonable faith and we're not afraid to engage in the reasonable nature of our faith. But there's something else in this passage. It says, give a reason, but how are we to do it? What does it say? With gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. So as we have been talking about cultural witness, what we've been talking about is that if we engage this way in our community with perhaps speakers coming in on the subject, uh, maybe others gathering around in a think tank kind of an environment, our culture has been going to pot, literally. But our culture is also desperately in need of truth, but truth perhaps more reasonable or reimagined than what they have experienced. So reasonable, but also winsome. Reasonable and winsome is how we see ourselves engaging the culture around us. If the heavens are declaring the glory of God is a general revelation, then the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord is special revelation. We read in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. So what does it mean when we say that Jesus is the amen and that he is special revelation? Well, there's very little historical doubt, even among secular historians, that a man by the name of Jesus Christ was born in approximately 4 B.C. There is not only the New Testament record, but Josephus, the Jewish historian, talks about the life of Christ. And while there is widespread agreement on this point, it's here after that where followers of Jesus Christ and secular historians part company. If Jesus is the truth, if he is the amen, the validator of our faith, then our attitude towards him makes all the difference in the world. I myself find great value in the perspective that one cannot affirm the historicity of Jesus without finding compelling reasons to recognize him as the Son of God. Think about it for a moment. Jesus arrived in fulfillment of prophecy. He led an exemplary life. His teaching was profound. His compassion was unparalleled. His miracles of healing were witnessed by many. If anyone has ever lived like we would expect God to live with us, if he lived with us, it would be like Jesus Christ. But there's more. He went to a cross. He became the means by which our sins are forgiven. And his followers discovered an empty tomb. He also claimed to be the Messiah. Someone has said that we are ultimately pushed to conclude that either he was who he said to be, the Son of God, or he was a liar. He claimed to be the Messiah, and he wasn't. But that doesn't fit the character we see revealed on the pages of Scripture. The only other alternative is that he was crazy. He was a, a lunatic and that, um, that he had lost his mind, as some do, believing that they are now the Messiah themselves. But in fact, that does not look like the Jesus we see in Scripture. It seems the most reasonable approach to the historical figure of Jesus Christ is to believe he was the Son of God. Something happened around 30 A.D. to turn 11 discouraged followers of a teacher who died an ignoble death on a cross into such powerful leaders they were known as people who turned the world upside down. 
It seems reasonable to believe that it was their witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Friends, this perspective won't be compelling to all. Philosophers develop arguments, philosophical arguments, around philosophical positions. They argue about epistemology, which is how do we know what we know. They argue about metaphysics, how do we know about things that are beyond physics or physical reality. They argue about ethics, principalists that believe that we need to follow principles in our ethical life, and situationalists that say just do the loving thing in any moment. Philosophers are lovers of wisdom, and so they reason about things. But faith, faith, my friends, provides a different starting point. It doesn't mean our Christian commitment is unreasonable, but rather it begins, our faith begins with an acceptance of God's revelation. When one steps into an affirmation of faith, that new reality is reasonable. It's not unreasonable. Someone has likened it to people in a swimming pool. <clears throat> Most of us, as we grow up, we, we do a little wading before we do any swimming. And when we wade into the water, we know that gravity holds us down. And if we were to continue to walk into the water, we would drown. The water would simply come over our heads. Most of us, when we're little kids, take a rock and throw it into the water. And the rock hits the water and it, and it goes down. And so clearly, the evidence suggests that water doesn't hold us up. And yet, the reality is we see some people swimming, and initially that doesn't make sense to us, but eventually, if we get into the water ourselves and we discover with a little instruction that the water is buoyant and it will hold us up, we then become believers we become believers that, yes, the water can hold me up too. And faith is a lot like that. When we cross into the place of faith, there are scientific reasons why water holds us up, the buoyancy of water, but it seems contrary to what we have understood. And it's the same thing. There are really good reasons for faith, but until we take that step and move into the, to the water of the faith and allow it to hold us up, it doesn't always make sense to us. As we say in the amen in our <clears throat> personal and corporate worship, we affirm the truth, the validity for us of what has been said, the worship of God. We also need to recognize that Jesus Christ is the amen of our faith. In him we find one in whom God has revealed himself. He's the expression of the validity of our faith. As I say, I believe our faith rises and falls on who Jesus Christ is. In discovering that Jesus is the amen, the truth of our faith, it's not just an intellectual or an emotional or a spiritual experience, but it affects how we live in this world. We recognize that we are citizens of two kingdoms because we are. If Jesus is who he says he is and we come to believe, we can't then ignore his call in our lives to be world changers, his call in our lives to be agents of the kingdom of God as a church and as individuals. It profoundly affects our lives. If we believe, it's not just an intellectual thing. We are now in a place where we need to become people of the kingdom. 
On November 22, 1963, David Lodge, the British playwright, was watching a performance of one of his works, and in his satirical review, the crowd laughed as the actor appeared at a job interview with a transistor radio. Some of you remember what a transistor radio is, and some of you may not know what a transistor radio is, but... um, It was a little thing with transistors in it that allowed us to move from radios with tubes in them to radios that had a battery and we could carry it around. And so this guy shows up in this play with a radio and the intention was to show his disinterest in the job interview that was about to take place. And so he comes into this set and sets the radio down and tunes in a radio station, didn't matter really what it was, but the radio station he got was a mix of music and news and whatnot. And as he had that as a background, purely a background for the play, the announcer on the radio unexpectedly came on with breaking news and said, today the American president, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. And amidst the gasps from the audience, The actor turned off the radio, but it was too late. The artificial world of the theater was suddenly flooded with the reality of life, and one world broke into the other. And friends, when we become followers of the risen Jesus Christ, we enter into the world of reality, the true world. We move from the world of the now into the world of the not yet, where we commit our lives to God's purposes. C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. Believing that Jesus is the amen of God changes everything about our lives. Frederick Buchner observes this. He said, if the world is sane, then Jesus is mad as a hatter and the Last Supper is the mad tea party. The world says, mind your own business, and Jesus says, there's no such thing as your own business. The world says, follow the wisest course and be a success, and Jesus says, follow me and be crucified. The world says, drive carefully, the life you save may be your own, and Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The world says, law and order, Jesus says, love. The world says, get, and Jesus says, give. In terms of the world's sanity, Jesus is as crazy as a coot, and anybody who thinks he can follow him without being a little crazy, too, is laboring less under the cross than under a delusion. We are fools for Christ's sake, Paul says, faith says. The faith that ultimately the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, the lunacy of Jesus is saner than the grim sanity of the world. It's one thing for us to talk about Frederick Buchner and C.S. Lewis and Charles Spurgeon and Billy Graham. But I think most of us are more effectively impacted by the faith of those that are near us, the faith of those with whom we are in a relationship whose lives serve as examples to us. In that regard, I think of dear Joanne Schradel. We had the memorial service a week ago, Saturday, for Joanne. And Joanne had been part of the North Sound Church, and I, I think just about every time I talk about a memorial service, I say I wish we could do memorial services before people die because we learn so much about their lives and we wish that we could talk to them about their life. 
Joanne was an amazing lady. She made cookies every week for the NAMI support group, the mental health support group here at North Sound. And uh, she made hundreds of cookies for our service in the park every year. Uh, She was um, an amazing lady. Her smile was one of her great characteristics. And uh, she had a wonderful, wonderful sense of humor. Before she was diagnosed with cancer, Barb and our grandson Ethan was visiting with her. Ethan is six years old. And uh, as they were visiting together, they uh, had a conversation, and Ethan um, discovered that Joanne, who liked candy, had candy hidden in different places in her living room and kitchen area. And so Ethan made himself at home and found these stashes of candy. And while he was doing that, Barb and Joanne were having an adult conversation, and in that conversation, Joanne mentioned that she was having pains in her abdomen area. Ethan, at a six years old, perhaps he's like other six-year-olds, but I'm amazed that when you ask them a question, they don't answer, but if it's something they want to hear, they hear it. Have you noticed that? It's, it's amazing. And so Ethan heard that comment by Joanne, and he came, comes bounding into the living room where they're sitting and says, six years old, says, Joanne, are you pregnant? <laughs> and then he proceeds later to tell others of grandma's uh, associates that grandma's friend is pregnant. She, Joanne and Barb had a, a major belly laugh uh, over that. I think it was good for, it was good for Joanne to, uh, to experience that. Earlier uh, this week, uh, we had the service on Saturday. On, su- on Sunday, I received a note from a family member. They had found a, um, a poem that had been written by Joanne Uh, just a few months before her diagnosis of cancer. It's called Homecoming, and it says, The clock says 3.30 when my eyes open wide. What woke me up early, I couldn't decide. I feel very peaceful, no pain in my frame. It was then that I hear him. He called me by name. I rose quickly to meet him, no time for goodbyes. And when my tears started, they were wiped from my eyes. There's family, friends, laughter, just happiness near. The word separation isn't allowed here. My life scans before me and joys grab my heart. With his words, faithful servant, never more will you part. Day one in eternity, and what's that to me? Choirs raise the hallelujah and Jesus sings with me. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the truth that Joanne lived out in her life to the last moment, the inspiration she gave to us. But Lord, we recognize that hope was in you, and you are our amen. And we thank you, Lord, for the truth of your life, your death, your resurrection, even as now we celebrate that truth around the Eucharist with a great thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. We invite you to join us for 
a service of communion before we close this morning. This is the Lord's table, not the table of North Sound Church, so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to join us for communion. Um, In a moment, I will take the communion elements and we will serve this section uh, and then the center section uh, and then this uh, section as well. In preparing our hearts for communion, we like to take a moment to look inside and uh, to see how our vertical relationship with God is doing and how our horizontal relationship with others is doing. So I invite you to stand with me. And for a moment before we do the prayer of confession together, I'd like you to think about your relationship with God and your relationship with others. And if there needs to be something done to restore either of those relationships, to take a moment in the quietness of your own heart to do that, and then we will have the, um, the prayer of confession together. So friends, let's humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. join together in the prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and earnestly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of his great mercy hath promised forgiveness of sins to all those with hearty repentance and true faith turn unto him, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Words of institution for our service come from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we read, What I received from the Lord, I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, today we thank you. We thank you that you are our amen. We thank you for the truth of your life, your death, your resurrection. We thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to be with us. And so in these moments of Eucharist, these moments of thanksgiving, we thank you, Lord, for the life you've given us through your body broken for us and your blood shed for us. In Jesus' name, amen.